0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Around about this time two decades ago, David Reid was two years into his career as a surgeon when he was thrown into the deep end. In 2002, on the morning of October 13, David received a phone call from the Australian Defence Force telling him to pick up his stuff and get to the Air Force base right away to be flown to Bali, where a series of bombs had just gone off in the island's tightly-packed tourist district. David quickly traded in the surgical ward at Royal Darwin Hospital for a makeshift trauma ward on the tarmac of Denpasar Airport. His experience in Bali and on the plane back to Australia with patients brought David into the intensity of trauma surgery, where quick decisions have to be made in an atmosphere of crisis and confusion. David Reed has since helped build Australia's first transportable field hospital. And now he leads the trauma department at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Hi, David. Hi, Richard. How do you describe trauma surgery and disaster response to people you've just met at a party? I know it's kind of a heavy conversation for you to be getting into straight away at a party, but I'm sure people go, oh, what do you do?" And You go, oh, trauma surgery. What do you tend to say when people ask you those questions?
0: Well, trauma surgery... Yeah, it's it's hard to describe globally, but uh, if I was to put an inflection on it, it's about probabilities rather than certainties, is that uh, when you're dealing with a trauma patient, a quick, close enough decision is better than a too late, correct decision. So it is a different sort of medicine and surgery than a lot of other specialties would practice, and we sometimes or will often practice on minimal information and best guess. And disaster surgery is, uh, well, it's a cousin of trauma surgery, but once again, it's a little different. There you have less access to all the bells and whistles because inherent in responding to a disaster is uh, that the health system is usually affected by a disaster, so you don't have all that you need, and sometimes it can be down to very basic knives and forks, and uh, sometimes it can be a little bit more fancy like a field hospital. So you're not only
1: sort of needing to make quick decisions, you need to often improvise with what you have at
0: hand. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. There has been a lot of thought in how to respond to diseases and both in a disaster and a trauma aspect, but uh, every patient and situation is new and they're going to throw something at you that hasn't been thought of before. So There is quite a little bit of, you know, using your principles and applying them in a novel way to the situation in front of you. So when you're in a disaster situation, what kind of injuries are you typically treating? Well, it depends very much on the disaster. For example, if it's an earthquake, you'll see a lot of fractures. If it's uh, responding to a a warlike situation, it'll be gunshot wounds, blasts. If it's like in the Philippines, uh, inundation, it's uh, a lot of mop-up wounds that have got infected for lack of care. So very much context-specific. And are the injuries different when it's something like a terrorist attack rather than a natural disaster? Well, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So uh, a terrorist attack uh, like happened in Bali was essentially wounds of war. And the weaponry that is used is designed to kill and maim and it is highly destructive. It is far worse than one would see in a really nasty motor vehicle collision. And that's, you know, that is still quite a challenge. But when you're dealing with war wounds, uh, they're very unforgiving. They affect all parts of the body. They, don't, they cross specialty boundaries. We, we're used to dealing or delivering our medicine and surgery these days as per this specialist and this specialist. But bullets don't respect that. So you need to be a bit of an all-rounder. There's a scene in the movie Gone with the Wind, you know, which was made I think twice in the 1930s or
1: something when Hollywood was more ready to spare us the realities of what... The situations of mass trauma or like, and I think it's, it might be after the Battle of Gettysburg or something, and there's, and there's this long shot of uh, wounded soldiers uh, sort of lying there in silence. I'm just thinking that can't be what it's like at all. There must be this en- enormous cacophony surrounding you while
0: you're doing this kind of work, David. I've been surprised how silent some of these situations have been. Really? and I, I can't explain it. When I walked onto the ward in Denpasar, it was quiet. I don't know if it was the shock of seeing Australian uniform medical personnel um, coming to retrieve them, but I was amazed how silent it was. I, I was expecting calamity, but the majority of the calamity I dealt with in Bali, with, with all due respect, was due to the media. <laughs> Getting in the way. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> and, and, and making demands, really? Uh, the media was more noisy and
0: whiny than the actual people who were injured in the blast? Look, I have to, be, <laughs> uh, I have to point out that I was thankful for the light on one of the cameras that uh, was shining when I was doing a minor procedure on someone it was quite good for the little operative <laughs> procedure I was doing. So I, I'm thankful for one aspect. There was that. Right. Yes. <laughs> So given that you're at the far end of what, what seems to be one of
1: the most extreme ends of medicine, you must have always wanted to be a doctor since you were a kid. Is that right? No, I wanted to be a
0: maths teacher. Really? Wow. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You... Sorry, Mr. <laughs> Packer, if you're listening, I still really <laughs> want to be a maths teacher.
1: <laughs> so given that, why did you why did you end up going into medicine?
0: Oh, uh, look, I... I... Changed my mind, and I don't regret it, but I really got a soft spot for math and I really enjoyed it and it, was, it really wasn't until you know halfway through year eleven when I realized actually I'm getting these marks uh, I'm a half decent chance of uh, getting into medical school that uh, I turned my thought to that but uh, I still do a bit of math, so I do a bit of statistics and epidemiology so I haven't forgot Mr. Packer. And I do enjoy my maths, but uh, no regrets about uh, where I've ended up in medicine and surgery. David, when you're presented with a maths problem, there's an
1: answer for that. And when you've come up with the answer for that, you can walk away, can't you? And you can go, that's finished now. I can't imagine anything more different to that than medicine, where you've got all these competing things that might be going on and and the truth is much muddier and more complex. Do Do you see that difference?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Sort of, if you take a mathematical approach to your patient, you may do your sum, and then a whole lot of other new numbers turn up, and a whole new other <laughs> equations turn up, and uh, you say, "Oh, well, if I had a known that, I would have done that." And that's um, it, that is quite a difference. You don't always
1: have the, all the information in, uh, immediately
0: oh, in not front not of you. Yeah, so, what all. propelled
1: you then from uh, you know from being a suburban GP, for example, into surgery, and from
0: uh, it, like that seems like another huge step forward. Yeah, well, I, I enjoyed it. Through medical school, academically, particularly the disease and surgery of, of the gastrointestinal system. And so I went into general surgery. And whilst I was doing that as part of general surgery, often um, you're sort of uh, given the responsibility of looking after trauma patients. And once again, um, I did enjoy that aspect. Um, so I continued on with, um, with both. Did all surgeons do trauma surgery or is it like a further extension, a further specialisation? A lot of surgeons do trauma surgery as a part of their subspecialty. So, you know, obviously our orthopaedic surgeons do, do a lot of trauma surgery. But, you know, even our eye surgeons and ENT surgeons can be, and not all of them are, but can be involved in trauma surgery. But when we talk about managing the whole patient, and uh, look, conducting the orchestra, which is necessary with so many um, specialists, then it's quite often uh, a general surgeon such as myself, or it can, can be another specialist such as an emergency physician or an anaesthetist that uh, is conducting the orchestra, so to speak. So, when two thousand and two happened, you'd been
1: an army reservist, a reservist with the ADF. What drew you into the army? Were you? Is there a
0: family history of service? Oh, both my grandparents uh, served, uh, as you did in the 40s. I I don't think many people didn't. My um, one grandfather uh, was a navigator for uh, DC3 in Northern Australia, and the other one was a a chef or a cook in the army. Uh, But their service didn't particularly define them. Uh, You know, they did their job and were happy to get out when they got out. But I remember I was at a bit of a loose end after I finished my training in 1999, And one of my specialists I was working with at that stage, uh, who'd been to Vietnam, still a colonel, sort of coerced me to uh, join up and and go over to East Timor back in 2000, which I did and I enjoyed. So, uh, and then I progressed from there. So 2002, tell me
1: where you were and what you were doing when you got that call to tell you something had happened in Bali.
0: yeah, the night before I tell you where I was, I was at the pub having a beer like the uh, like the <laughs> Australian victims. Um, well, this was and, Darwin, uh, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean yes, of you are in Darwin and went in Rome, <laughs> you know, as they say. And, yeah. and I am so thankful I had an early night that night and uh, I was enjoying the sleep in. So it was mid-morning when I got a phone call and uh, it was actually from um, an Army Reserve contact saying, uh, get to the RAF base uh, to uh, bring your kit. Something's happened in Bali. And at that stage, we weren't actually quite sure that it wasn't a gas explosion but it became evident soon that it actually was a terrorist event. So what were you and and others
1: talking about while you were all preparing to leave to get on a a plane to go to Denpasar?
0: Well, fortunately, another Army reservist, uh, Sue Winter, was with me. She was an anaesthetist and an intensive care specialist and very experienced in civilian aeromedical evacuation. She also um, worked at the Royal Darwin Hospital with me and she had quite a bit of corporate knowledge and she smelt a rat and uh, had gone around all the ADF health facilities and gutted them of anything that she could thought uh, would be useful, such as antibiotics, anaesthetic medications, pain relief. So um, she thought, it, she had an inkling it might be something worse than a, oh, a mere gas yes. explosion, right? Y- yes. And by the to be fair, by the time we were about to be loaded, we knew it was not a gas explosion and uh, she had a had developed a very good um, protocol uh, of what we would do with these people. And, you know, without Sue's um, foresight, things would have been a lot worse. So how quickly were you able to get to Bali? I remember getting to the RAF base at uh, close to lunchtime and uh, as so many times in the Defence Force, I I hurried up and waited. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I think my memory's sketchy for time, but I think it might have been around about the end of the day, about five or six that a C-130 had landed from ambulance refueling and uh, that took us aboard. It might have been closer to four or five. So we arrived at getting close to dusk in Bali. It's only two and a bit hours trip straight into a gridlock car park at uh, at Denpasar Airport. So how were you supposed to get to the hospital from the airport? Yeah, so we were met by a consular official who was all over it uh, and had a a high-Ace type van ready for us. Uh, What he wasn't quite expecting uh, was the amount of kit that we bought with us. So um, we didn't quite fit in as ideally as uh, would have. We actually had to put a nurse in the boot. Um, Good uh, God. Yes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Luckily, luckily this nurse came in a smaller size, um, but we managed to pay Tetris with all our personnel and equipment. We we didn't think it was a good idea to split up at that stage. uh, And... Coping with Balinese traffic, uh, we got ourselves uh, to uh, the hospital at Denpasar. Why was there so much traffic that day? I'd heard a rumour that the president of Indonesia had arrived and they'd blocked off some roads to allow her passage. I do not know if this was true. You know, the the traffic in Bali is pretty rubbish anyway. I hear this happens all the time when there's a disaster like this. The yes. health, the, the caregivers are
1: uh, kept uh, held to one side so that the president can come through for a photo op. I mean, this just happens, doesn't it? This is terrible. So, as you're inching through traffic, inching around, around we we don't know if this, if this is true or not, but with indeed some kind of a motorcade, perhaps of the, of the president, you get to the hospital in Sungla Hospital. What do you remember when you finally got there, David?
0: Yeah, well, uh, once again, we're met by a military attaché who had a list of where the patients were and led us to the area. And I remember walking onto that ward and that was that deathly silence. Uh, I still don't, I can't get my head around it. It was so quiet. Uh, I was expecting a calamity. I was expecting uh, to just be a disaster, but the Balinese nurses were in their starched whites looking immaculate. Um, The patients were well looked after. I met a, a couple of Australian doctors that had been working all night um, tirelessly uh, on them and uh, I had a hand, we had a handover of the patients as you would in any sort of normal medical situation. How were they coping with all the injuries though? Surprisingly well. Uh, you know, these were badly burnt people. Any one of them would have been received in a trauma hospital by a team of several doctors, several nurses, and there were dozens of them. It was uh, it was late. It was you know maybe eighteen hours after their injury, maybe twelve. So you know I'm sure a lot of them had had passed already, and these ones that that were there had a trial of survival already. But it was surprisingly ordered in that ward, outside of the ward that was a little less secure and a little more chaotic. Uh, But uh, the ward was very impressive. And are you given like specific? I
1: don't know if the phrase is right, rules of engagement here, or is it just you're sort of thrown in and do what you can and fix what
0: you can where you see it? Yeah, you know, institutional memory is very weak, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, I understand it was the biggest aeromedical airlift since the Vietnam War, so there weren't a lot of people that, uh, self-included, that had any corporate knowledge of this. Uh, and, uh, you know, the rule books sort of, well, the doctrine say that you normally wouldn't take a surgeon on aeromedical evacuation, but uh, so that was what your job was—to get the patients, yeah. get what
1: get Australian patients specifically ready for air evacuation.
0: Yeah. yeah. So uh, it was, although the local Balinese doctors, nurses were doing a great job. They needed to decompress; um, they were overwhelmed. So it was, it was all Australians and people with a reasonable relationship with Australia was the brief, and I, I don't think it was presented as gospel. We were there to do what we saw fit. And how did you get to work? We just came across one lady with uh, who was terribly shocked and we had a bit of blood. Uh, so uh, we thought we'd better get her a transfusion. I remember Sue Winter said, uh, uh, give her two units of blood. But uh, we couldn't get a drip in it. She was flat as a pancake, to use a non-technical term. So uh, in that situation that uh, you... Can put a little, do a little surgical procedure where you could just cut into the leg under anaesthetic and find a vein that that way. So I, I did that, uh, and boy, did that to create a bit of attention. Um, suddenly, um, uh, the media came along, and the procedure was fine, but it was clear to us that we were probably better off moving our people to the airport where the aircraft was as soon as possible. So we we sort of decided that we would split up in a convoy of um, ambulances and escort as many of them as we could back. And this is a team of, uh, what, two specialists, two doctors, I think maybe two nurses, two medics, not a big team. And rendezvous again at the tarmac at Denpasar in this uh, area that they'd, um, the airport had uh, got us a nice secure area, airside with good lighting in an area where they would park the fire engines. They moved them out for us and that was um, that was very suitable for setting up. Technically, you're called a casualty clearing station or a uh, in, in old uh, military medical parlance or, a, or an aeromedical staging facility where we could settle the, um, the patients down and get them ready for loading on the aircraft.
1: Was security something you were thinking about because there were two bombs in the nightclubs and then there was a bomb at, I think, the US consulate or embassy uh, that was there? Were you conscious of the fact there might be another bomb at the hospital or at the airport? Yeah, absolutely,
0: and uh, uh, sort of unhelpfully we were informed that the alleged perpetrators had a history of second hits and even targeting uh, medical teams. So that, was, um, that sticks in the back of one mind, um, and I felt very nervous when we did split up and headed back to the to the airport, and I was very thankful when I got there and saw the rest of my team there and that uh, everybody had got there safe because that... Uh, you know, this is that's a hard enough job already. Let alone um a fear for life. Um, you know, you expect that when you sign up um and take um the queen ooh, the king's commission now, mm. but uh, yeah, it ain't fun. So, how were you going to get everyone back fr- from the hospital to Denpasar Airport when, given your trip up there, you had a nurse in the boot of the car? So we had the local ambulances. So they were calling in an ambulance in Bali these uh, those days was it was a, a high ass sort of van that you could fig- fit a single stretcher in. So. Uh, there were a fleet of those, so they kept on f- back and forth, and the traffic had cleared a little bit uh, by that stage, so it wasn't that bad a trip um, back at, uh, you know, the, the, their hour up was the 20 minutes back. Did that mean, though, you were ferrying them back one at a time? Yes, it did. So that must have taken ages. Uh, Ooh, well, ages. Once, once I got back, I stopped. You know, we sort of hitched hike on these ambulances and left it to uh, the Balinese uh, paramedics and nurses to, uh, to bring them to us. So you said you were able to set up a,
1: a kind of a field hospital on the tarmac yeah. at Denpasar in the area for yeah. the fire trucks. So you
0: had, you said there was good light there. Were you happy working on the tarmac there? Yeah, I did. You know, everybody was kept behind a fence, uh, and they were lined up three or four thick watching from a distance, but they were out of my hair. You mean the media, in other words? Yeah, yeah and a lot of civilians, um, just, um, just spectators, yep. So how long were you there at work
1: on the patients, yeah. on the tarmac, before you could... Have the mail lifted out of Bali
0: to have them brought to Darwin or, and elsewhere. So, when I turned up uh, at the airport, the rotors were turning on our plane, and uh, I was uh, met by uh, one of the doctors who said, uh, "Look, we got to go." And I said, "Now," and he said, "Absolutely." The pilots have had, had x amount of extensions. It, it's it, you know it's just the rules. They've they've got to go. And Sue Wenda hadn't arrived back with her ventilated intensive care patients yet. So,
1: so was there an we, argument on the tarmac at that point?
0: No, it wasn't an argument. It's just that uh, we just accepted that the rules have been bent enough and this aircraft had to get back with the, the 12, 14 patients. And Steve Cook said, ready, I think you're going to have to stay. And I said, I think I might have to as well. <laughs> Although I would have been very happy to get in the back of that aircraft. So uh, that aircraft left shortly after Sue arrived with a ventilated patient and we were stuck on the tarmac for a lifetime with a ventilated patient and what gradually grew to about 24, 25 other stretcher patients. I'm not sure if it's three or six hours, but uh, it seemed like forever. What kind of
1: work were you doing, what procedures you were doing while you were waiting for the next plane to come?
0: We were sort of scratching our head or Sue and I were looking at each other as, you know, know, okay, well, this is novel, you know, what next? And we sort of realised that we had a surgeon and we had an anaesthetist and although it wouldn't be uh, a traditional sort of thing, we had the kit to give them limited anaesthetic. So uh, we said, well, why don't we just get in and start doing the work that needs to be done? And uh, the work that needed to be done is... Many of the patients had burns that, when they go right around a limb, they they constrict around about this time and start forming a tourniquet, and it can cause uh, the lack of blood supply can cause limb loss. So there's a not that complicated procedure called called an escherotomy where you can cut the dead skin and open it up to release the pressure to allow the blood to get back into the limb. So there we. Went under ketamine anaesthesia, which was a very good medicine for the job. Really? That worked under the circumstances? It was the right medicine for the job. Yeah. Um, we couldn't have, you know, we couldn't have taken anybody's spleen out like that, but um, nor would you would you do such a thing. So you couldn't do a big operation there. But limb surgery of short duration, ketamine worked a treat. You know, when you're under a ketamine anaesthetic, you, you, you look after your own breathing yourself. Um, so Sue would give the ketamine, give me the thumbs up when it was okay to start. I would start. Uh, a medic would hold a torch and shine it into the wound. And, you know, I had a scalpel and not much else. Uh, we, we were using civilians to, to just talk to the patients um, uh, and keep them as best orientated and let us know if there were any problems. Um, that would have been tough. That would have been really tough on them. Ketamine—you sort of—you can get a funny reaction with ketamine. It just uh, can make you a bit vague and disorientated. So we, um, they did a great job there.
1: After a very bad burn, you can—you normally—I uh, understand. Um, correct me if I'm wrong here. You—you—you mm. you, you slather the, the burns with antibacterial cream, like silver—a silver-based mm. cream—and bandage it up and wait for it to... Were you able to do that? Did you have the resources to be able to put that kind of uh, antibacterial treatment on the wounds and then bandage them up and stable, help stabilise them under the circumstances?
0: Uh, no, we didn't really. We, um, we had some gauze dressings, but, you know, it was it Burns patients are colossal consumers of resources, um, colossal. Uh, we did not have enough for them. Uh, we just had to do best we did with uh, with gauze. Glad wrap, in retrospect, would have been great. Uh, it's a common commonly used dressing in this situation. Uh, you know, it's, uh, if I had my time again, I would have uh, stopped into uh, the supermarket on the way and picked up some Glad wrap because that would have done the, the job nicely. keeps the, keeps the fluid in, keeps the heat in. You can still see the wound, um, so that was uh, that was a lesson learnt. Was well, Sue Winty a bit of a guide or a, a kind of a beacon for
1: you in this moment?
0: Oh, yeah, Sue, um, you know, Sue had done quite a bit with the Defence Force in the past. She'd been to Rwanda. She'd done a lot of aeromedical evacuation. She taught on the courses that she, uh, so she she was the subject matter expert. So um, she stood tall that day.
1: Podcast, broadcast and online. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So tell me about what happened when you were finally able to get on a plane to come back to Darwin with the rest of these patients, David.
0: Yeah, well, I was pretty happy to see that aircraft land, to be honest. After after several hours, I'd, um, I, was, uh, I was ready to move on. It was a, a pretty tough situation, and uh, we'd just basically run out of everything. I was sort of running out of options, and... The patients just kept on turning up, um, and which is, you know, not their fault. It's just uh, the way it is. And how many of the team were you was, was there on, on on the tarmac? There was you and Sue, and,
1: and who who else did you have with you? I, uh,
0: one nurse and one medic oh. uh, for twenty odd people. One of them ventilated. We had help from a civilian doctor who turned up. We had help from a army army um, full time lieutenant who was uh, he had muscles on his muscles. I didn't mind having him around here. <laughs> He was good with logistics, and he kept he kept us safe. So, what you had something more than twenty patients or thereabouts, twenty
1: three mm. patients or thereabouts, yep. Yep. and you had to bring them on the Hercules aircraft. How did you fit yep. them all in?
0: The aircraft is configured for such, but it's a sight to behold. Uh, there's, they were stacked five high on their stretchers, so they they're lying on these um, the stretchers. They're NATO litters; they're called. They were there waiting for them in the uh, at the field hospital, so to speak. We pick them up. You put this stretcher in and strap it in. Uh, you put another one on top, you know, another one on top.
1: Like stacked up on the wall of the plane or something like that? In, in the, the middle, middle. In the middle
0: yep. of the aircraft, In the right? middle, yeah, in two rows. Four uh, to five high, wow. Four to five high, and there's not a lot of space in the litter above you. It's perhaps, uh, it, these are not bunk beds. Perhaps it was two foot uh, between the litters, so it was uh, uh, those patients would have been staring at a, a wall of olive green, and so you're still treating these patients on that flight, which is what, like, what, what, how long is it, like two and a half hours, three hours? Yeah, between? about two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, yeah things changed on that flight. It, uh, uh, although I was happy to be on that flight, the, it got cold, uh, as often planes do, and the patients got cold because they burnt burned as well. Uh, it was contained and you, the smell of the burnt flesh was, was everywhere. Some poor fellow got a dose of the barley belly as well, so that was the p- smell of that pervading through the place it was uh, uh it was pretty it was pretty rough in the back bat- of that aircraft. one of the patients I was watching their limb it was getting worse the, I was trying not to do an escherotomy because we were run out of gear, but I was forced in flight to do an escherotomy and yeah, you know, uh, I'm so sorry, um, but he, we just didn't have enough pain relief, so that, that was not good for him, but, uh, you know, the limb's still on. So
1: aside from treating these people as a doctor, are you also being a nurse as well, running
0: bedpans for people and doing that sort of thing? Well, yes, you have to muck in, don't you? So once mm. um, once we'd left the uh, aeromedical staging facility uh, the, and in the back of the aircraft, there wasn't much of a need... For skills as a surgeon, but you know there were drips to check. You know there were wounds to check. There was uh, there was pain relief to give until it ran out, which it did. And questions to
1: answer too. I'm imagining the patients that were conscious had a lot of questions for you about what had happened to them and what the the
0: prognosis was. Oh, it was as loud as hell in the back there, to be honest, with the with the engines going at full blast. And there weren't that many questions, to be honest. People were just almost apologetic for asking if they had a problem. So that yeah, it was, you know, I'm so sorry, but I've got a lot of pain, you know, <laughs> you don't have to apologise. Apparently this is really common and I'm sure since
1: then you might have noticed whether that's a common thing. Like I hear this mm-hmm. all the time and, well, not all the time, but I've heard stories of military hospitals where a doctor goes from one bed to the next and they've had a shocking wound and they'll, but they'll say, oh, I'll be all right. What about the, the, the bloke in the next bed? Is that the that a, a thing that's more common than
0: we'd realise? I wonder, David. Yes, people are at their best when they're at their worst. Mm. So sometimes it's uh, it's really humbling.
1: So you're heading for Royal Darwin Hospital when you got there. Now I just read this in a single 36-hour period, Darwin Hospital dealt with more casualties than any single hospital after these either the September 11 attacks or the Oklahoma bombings in the United States. This and, and you know beyond the 23 patients you helped us. This Court this is extraordinary. What
0: happened when you got back to Darwin, David? What do you remember of that? Uh, to go back a little bit, we landed and Brian Spain, my friend at anaesthetist, was there. And so we handed over the patients as they came out and we had instructions to prepare to go back and get some more, which we all slumped a bit, but you have to do what you have to do. So that involved some pretty inelegant hosing down of the aircraft and the litters. Uh, and fortunately, we got the word that we weren't we re, weren't going to be retasked and sent back. And I was released, and I went to, to the Royal Darwin Hospital. It was about, oh, look, seven or eight in the morning. I, I was starting to feel it, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I was a little tired. So I did go to the Darwin, and I told them what I knew. And I went to bed, and, you know, understandably. Uh, and I got up about uh, four or five, and by that stage, had been, a, uh, you know, my colleagues had been working all during the day on all the patients, and uh, a few had drifted off to other things and for a rest. And uh, uh, I got a decent sleep, and I was okay. And uh, there was only a couple left to operate on, and so I just put the gloves on and. Uh, Help, you know, there's only minor things to do, and that's probably all I could have handled at that stage. And uh, did a bit of minor wound work uh, uh, with uh, Dave Goal or one of my colleagues, until uh, they were all settled. Next, uh, then I went back to bed again. Next morning, I got up, and uh, they're virtually all gone. The RAF once again had gone in and and ferried them to far and wide to uh, interstate. Yeah, the Royal Brisbane Hospital, I think to Perth as well, and and other places, yeah. Yeah, all over. And there were, of the 60 odd that had been through, there were about about 10 left. Those without significant attachment to other states um, stayed with us. So is that really weird? Like after
1: all this kind of terror and madness and, and fear and, and and horror and all that, and suddenly things are really quiet and it's it's all quiet. Is that odd?
0: Surreal, hmm. yeah, absolutely surreal. It's uh, you know the Darwin, even back then, was super prepared for a disaster. They just thought it would be a cyclone, but the cyclone plan actually worked really well for this bombing. There was you know cyclone, you've got you've got that twenty four hours. It's coming. You know it's going to hit you. You can clear out your beds. And this, you know, this was similar to, you know, different wounding mechanisms, but we still had, the Darwin still had that time to get organised and uh, clear out the wards and get, enact the plans, and it, it, worked, it worked really well. It would have been a different story if that bomb had gone off in the CBD of Darwin, but the delay allowed the cyclone plan uh, to work really well for these people. How did your experience then in, in Bali affect your,
1: the course of your work as a surgeon?
0: yeah well i it's uh yeah, well the Bali was a, a good part good experience in that one year that I went to Darwin just for a year to take a look and see how I might go there with a view to staying and I grew up pretty quick that day it would be fair to say how old were you at that point? uh thirty two it's, it's youngish for a surgeon but you know i'd been around I'd been to East Timor a couple of times and uh done a few locums in the country so uh but yeah it's it's young as a surgeon. Uh, so I thought, I'd, you know, I'd, you know, I like this place. I uh, might make it my career, and I, I worked there for a good fifteen, sixteen years. And if it wasn't for the needs of my family, I'd probably still be there.
1: The fact, though, that you'd been a, a trauma surgeon in a terrible crisis like that, you must have had a lot of wisdom to impart, or experience, at least, to impart to other doctors.
0: Yeah, well, this evolved in Darwin, in that uh, in two thousand and four, the, the government said, "Well, here's a bit of money," uh, and to make Royal Darwin strong and start developing a disaster capacity uh, and capability. And that's sensible. Darwin sits on that arc of geopolitical instability and is a a fantastic staging base for response for problems, disaster and man-made. So that evolved over time and that was a really nice journey to be a part of. It didn't really take off until about the late 2000s and perhaps really get out of second gear in 2010 but by the early uh, 2010s we had a deployable field hospital which is uh, that's quite a thing for a civilian hospital to have and uh, you know I, I was very fortunate to have a quite a role in developing that um, particularly the surgical aspects what do you mean by a deployable field hospital? Is this like a mash unit? I'm yeah, yeah, i I'm, scram- I'm reaching
1: here a bit because that's that's yeah. my imagining of it. Is yeah. it is it something like a kit you can open up or I don't I, I
0: can't imagine what that would be like. It's a lot of tents and a lot of surgical equipment and a lot of stretches. It's it's not too different from the mash concept. It's it's certainly mobile. Fits in the back of you know, Toyota uh, <laughs> a, a you No, know, it fits in the back of a C one thirty, so it's a heavy lift. It's a heavy lift. It's a. It's about a sixty. It can be a sixty bed hospital. So it's it's um it's not mucking around. It's quite a capable, a capable hospital with uh, two operating tables, uh, and you've uh, got to run after the typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines. Yeah, um, tell me
1: about that. You were deployed to that. That was what twenty thirteen Philippines uh, typhoon Haiyan. What was the nature of that disaster? And your and what was required from you and uh, the team that went in there?
0: Yeah. So that. Um, uh, was uh, once that was a pleasure to be with, be in. You know, I still get a lump in the throat when I talk about Bali. Uh, it was hard work and it was heartbreaking. But the response to the Philippines, we were welcome in. They'd lost their lost their health infrastructure. The place look, reminded me of the photos that you would see after Hiroshima. It, it was flattened. We thought about how we might respond to something like this over over several years. It wasn't perfect, but it was a very good professional response. It's considered, it's well considered internationally, that response. The patients were delightful and very thankful. We worked collegially with the local doctors. And once they got their health facility up again, they said, Thank you very much. We've got it from here. And we handed our patients over to them and we went back. How much work did you do there? uh, So I was there for two weeks. Uh, and I think it was about 140 sort of operations of various sites. So, so, so you know, we had but, uh, myself and Annette Hollian as the other surgeon, an orthopaedic surgeon, and we got through uh, in both two-week rotations, I think it was 220, 230 operations, uh, most of them in the first two weeks. So it was pretty busy. The ward was pretty full. Uh, they were long days. So the operating theatre would sometimes be going for for 14 hours a day. It was, you uh, know, it, it was it had an element of being planned for. We were equipped and prepared. It was, you know, it was challenging work, uh, but you didn't feel like you were being stuck under the bus, so to speak. So you had control and there's, you know, there's, there's limitations in the environment to the level of care that you can give. So there, you know, there's some diseases over there that that are fatal for the local population or that uh, they just don't do as well because it's, uh, it's a lower, those lower-middle-income countries that may be out of sight of a disaster situation in a, in a high-income country such as Australia, the patient might survive and or do better. You know, tetanus is an example. So there's, uh, there's challenges, there's ethical challenges, but uh, by and large it was uh, a pleasure to be a part of a professional response. How do you learn to keep calm in those situations? Are you calm
1: or, or is your head sort of – are you trying to suppress a feeling of, oh, Christ, what am I going to do next like any normal person would, David? Are, are you calm or do you have to sort of suppress a feeling of rising, um, a, a feeling of that, a terrible, being terribly troubled by what you're being confronted with right in your face?
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. You've got, uh, you got to have a game face, that's for sure. Mm. I worry about those uh, health professionals who just who don't worry, uh, if you know what I mean, in this sort of situation, it's uh, it's protective for both you and your patient. I think is, uh, but calm is infectious in these situations. If uh, if they see you, whether you're in a, leading a trauma resuscitation or you're in a, as in a surgeon as a leadership position, if they see you being disconcerted or uh, showing that you're highly concerned then that's not good the uh filters down the team very well so there's still plenty of room for being caring but you cannot be seen to be losing it um, do, you, do you have to speak as softly as you can funnily enough i think it's good to start like that and i think it's good to uh save up your uh, your escalations for when it really matters uh but it's uh, you know it's as i said calm is infectious but that's me there that's a that's the sort of a game face and you know i'm I'm reliably told by Mrs. Reed that as soon as one of the, my little girls get hurt, I go to pieces. Um, so, you know, so these things are, are contextual. I um, mean, yeah. you, know, um, you, could, you could bring in someone missing three limbs that's, that's uh, run over an improvised explosive device in their Jeep and... and I'm fine. You know what to do. You're I'm ready to fine. go. You're fine. Yeah. But the girls, like, you know, they get a, yeah. what, a splinter or a sniffle yeah. or something. Alana gets a paper cut and right. uh, I'm a mess. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> My wife steps in and goes, well, just go into the next room while I yeah, bend because... Exactly right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it sounds to me then the difference to the Bali response and the typhoon response to you is the level of preparation then. The, 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 the fact that you're able to, it seems like you're ha- happy to, you feel like you can take a degree of contentment from the fact that you had a good plan, you enacted it, and it worked is that Is that the difference
0: here uh, Yes, yes. Um, you know we had a pretty good plan for Bali, but it was made on the fly, and we did as well as we could so i 'm not'm not full of regrets but you know, i I wonder a lot more about if we could have done things differently with the benefit of hindsight and and you know, for about half of that time in the the uh, airport in the in the in the aeromedical staging facility, I, it's I just was not at peace with myself. I just knew that there were people that were going to die, and I don't know if I'm, the, if I'm the first person to have had an epiphany in a, um, a public toilet at uh, Denpasar Airport, but I just remember uh, just taking that two minutes to myself and just sort of accepting that. You know, this is war surgery, and you know that people are going to die and they're going to lose limbs, and, and that's how war works. Treat it like it's a warlike situation and save those that you can.
1: Afterwards, did you look into how those patients had gone, the ones you were able to
0: bring back to Darwin? Afterwards, I picked up my gear again and went a day later to East Timor for my two weeks of service in the field hospital there. It just happened to coincide with that time. So uh, there I was in, in Moliana, and, and that's it 2002. It's very quiet in East Timor at that stage. I, I, I don't think I actually operated on anyone. Um, you're sort of there as a contingency. So I missed it all. And to be honest, I didn't seek it out. Why not? Uh, which is unusual. Yeah, yeah. We, I, I just didn't want to know about it. Um, I just because I I knew there was going to be things that weren't. You know, the, there would have been people that were going to pass, um, and there were going to there were of those limbs that I operated. I knew that you know that some of them, despite best efforts, were going to come off. And indeed, some people got in the media, and I I saw that. Oh, okay. Well, that didn't work, and that was unsurvivable. And it was you know. Uh, and although one did as much as one can and there is a limit to what can you can do with a scalpel and a torch on a stretcher and ke- with ketamine on the ground, it does weigh a bit heavy um, uh, that you just wonder if you, if you had have had a different circumstance, uh, if you might have been able to do a bit more. So did you find out about what happened to those patients? No, I... Uh, still to this day, I, it's uh, apart from the ones that pop up in the media, uh, you, I haven't really had any um, sort of contact. It's it's a it's a funny old it's a funny old bit. I'm not adverse to that, but at that time, my res, you know my response was just to go into the bubble, and you know I had to sort of concentrate on my next job was which was being you know being the surgeon. For the Australian Defence Force, for you know a large battle group in East Timor, so I had to. There probably there wasn't time nor even ability to find out how they went. You know, you sort of read the newspapers what came, which came very late, but uh, it's not something that I particularly sought out. The other difference, which we
1: haven't talked about between the Bali bombing response and the response to the typhoon, is that one disaster was. Natural and the other was man-made. Does the fact that something like the Bali bombings, uh, the fact that that was perpetrated by human beings Mm. in an act of absolute malice, does that make a difference to how you respond to it and how
0: you think about it afterwards? Oh, it makes me grumpy um, for sure, and I think that's probably why I talk about uh, the Philippines with a you know that was nobody's fault. That's just that's just what happens. Whereas Bali didn't have to happen, and I know it's a might seem a bit of a, a conundrum that, that someone who puts their hand up as a military surgeon to uh, um, say that, look, it didn't have to happen. But, you know, it's... Uh, but it didn't, you're right. Yeah, well, you know, I look forward for the day that mankind declares war insane and leaves it behind it. But, uh, you know, until that stage, uh, I see my job is to clean up the mess and to preserve life and limb as a result of such, um, such actions.
1: Do you end up with a kind of a view on human beings after having confronted such things in general? I mean, like you say, you've seen people at their very wor- – well, you've seen people responding to the actions of people at their worst, if you like, in, yeah. with extraordinary courage. I, I just wonder what you what – you, if you've arrived at any – advanced any views on what people are like as a result of that?
0: Yeah, I, I've seen some absolutely terrible things and some absolutely terrible behavior and I've seen grown men cry. Uh, self-included, but, you know, uh, it's there's a lot of beauty in all of this. Uh, you know, you wish, it, you wish it didn't happen, but, you know, it's the the one reward you get for being in this situation is you do see a lot of beauty. People probably see that in you too.
1: You know, you're there holding their hand, helping them through this thing. Do you think
0: about that? Yeah, but I had never thought that before. Have you received awards for the service you gave to those people you treated? Oh look, I, I was very honoured to be awarded the Conspicuous Service Cross, which is it's you know, it's a very high award for um, in the military, and uh, it carries post-nominal uh, qualifications, and uh, and that's fine. But uh, what I really would have liked is someone to buy me a beer afterwards and say thanks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well. Well, here's hoping someone will buy you a beer after they hear this program at some point down the line, David. And a, sla- a slap on the back would be okay slap as well. Slap on the back. Here's
0: your beer, mate. There you go. Thank you.
1: Thanks, mate. Thank you for your service.
0: That, that sort of down-to-earth sort of uh, uh, salt-of-the-earth sort of appreciation is what I'm really craving. <laughs>
1: That's fair enough, too. I do thank you for your service. It's been wonderful speaking with you, David, and thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. Dr. David Reed is a trauma surgeon who works at Royal Melbourne Hospital. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.